Uh, our text today is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. They are arguably the two most important verses in this letter. Paul introduces the principal themes of Romans right here. God's righteousness, which he's going to discuss in greater detail, but in chapter 1, chapters 3 and 4, chapter 10, chapter 14. Uh, the Jewish-Gentile relationship he introduces here, which he will clarify in chapters 9 through 11. And faith, which he talks about throughout the whole letter, but especially from the very end of chapter 3 through the very beginning of chapter 5, where the words for faith or trust in Greek appear 24 times. Now, let's read these verses together. It's just a short passage, so let's read them in unison. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There are four big words in this text that we need to know. Gospel, salvation, righteousness, and faith. They're the big four. They are foundational to an understanding of the book of Romans and really to our entire Christian lives. So in verse 16, Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel. I want to remind you of what gospel is and what it's not. The gospel is an announcement about something that has happened. It is not a prescription about something that ought to happen. The gospel is not a public service announcement about something that we ought to do. You know the kind? The National Weather Service has issued a tornado warning for Branch County. Please seek shelter immediately. That's not the gospel, and yet that is how many people think of the gospel as an announcement about what you better do for your own good. Now, you may choose not to, but you better. But the gospel is not an announcement about what you should do. It's an announcement about what God has done. On August 14, 1945, President Truman announced that the Japanese emperor had sent a message of unconditional surrender through the Swiss embassy. Hostilities had ceased. The formal terms of the agreement would not be signed until September 2nd, but for all intents and purposes, the war was over. People all over the U.S. and around the world broke into celebration. The end of the war had enormous implications for people's lives and what they would do with them. But the announcement was not about what they should do. It was about what had been done. Paul's gospel is the same kind of thing. It's not an announcement about what people should do, though it has implications for our lives. It's about what God has done in our world, especially by sending his one and only son, who died at the hands of evil men, but was raised by God from the dead and appointed Lord of all the earth. Now, if that announcement is true, and Paul was convinced it was, then people have a decision to make. What they decide to do about those things will change their lives. But it won't change the gospel. Because the gospel is not something that should happen, but something that has happened. 
In Greek, a writer can place a word at the beginning or the ending of a sentence or the beginning or the ending of a phrase to give it emphasis. It was their way of italicizing. The word that Paul started this sentence with, the word he italicizes, as it were, is the word not. So in Greek, the first word is the word ou or not. Uh, spoken translation would be, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, shame is not a bad thing. The ability to feel shame is important to our well-being. People who have no shame are in a bad place. They're like people who have no nerve endings due to some injury or disease. And in our current climate, shame is regarded as unconditionally bad. And having no shame is considered a good and sometimes even a courageous thing. Let me just take a detour here for a second. The bigger problem is not that people are shameless, but that they're ashamed of the wrong things. And today especially, people are ashamed of things that future, former generations and future ones will take pride in. Um, just and as an example, patriotism, masculinity, femininity, respect. But many people feel no shame about things that previous generations wouldn't even mention, most of which have to do with human sexuality. See, when people refuse to find meaning and satisfaction and love for and relationship with their creator and their fellow creatures, they will look for it in the only place that's left, in themselves. And they'll usually look for it in sensations and feelings. And of course, sexuality is a rich source of sensations and feelings. Addiction to sensations and feelings defines our culture right now. Some of the most critically acclaimed books and movies in the past four decades are variations on just one theme, that to be authentic, people must give expression to their feelings. Whatever those feelings are, whether society considers the expression of those feelings to be immoral or not, whether they consider them to be immoral or not, even when expressing those feelings hurts other people. That is diabolically deceptive. People are ruining their relationships, they're ruining their lives because as they say, I have to be myself. But the self is so much more than feelings and sensations. People are selling out the very self to which they say they're committed. They're turning themselves into ghosts, into mere shadows of their true selves, their true humanity. They're becoming hollow. Their life is more and more lived on the surface. They're on their way to becoming soulless sense perceptors, and they'll never find meaning or satisfaction in that. Now, Paul had a sense of shame, but he was not ashamed of the gospel. I have to confess there was a time in my life when I was. I had friends, I'm not sure that's the right word, who thought that religious stuff was for people who didn't have a life. And these weren't people that hated God or hated Jesus. They just thought Jesus was for children and little old ladies, not for real men. I was ashamed to stand up and announce the good news of Christ because I thought that these friends would reject the message and me. 
You know, there were people in Paul's day, just as in our day, who did exactly that. They rejected both the message and the messenger. Nevertheless, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. He was, in fact, verse 15, eager to share it. And in verse 16, he tells us why. The gospel is God's power. The Greek word is dunamis. Uh, We get our word dynamite from that word. For or unto, the Greek word implies movement toward a goal, unto salvation. Okay, salvation. That's the second of those four big words. In Christian circles, we talk a lot about it, don't we? Sometimes I wonder what non-Christians think when they hear us talking about salvation. And sometimes, you know, to be perfectly honest, I wonder what we think. I mean, it's one of the big words in the Christian faith. One of the biggest Trying to understand the Bible and Christian life without having a grasp of salvation is like trying to understand football without grasping the concept of touchdown. But the meaning isn't self-evident, is it? Any more than the meaning of touchdown is self-evident. I mean, why do they call it touchdown? You ever thought about that? Isn't that what a plane does when it comes back to earth? You know, I get first down, second down, third down, fourth down. But what does that have to do with touchdown? In football, when someone gets a touchdown, the game isn't over. In life, is the game over when a person gets salvation? I mean, do you get salvation? Is it like getting a bonus? Maybe it's like getting the flu. Or is is salvation not something that you get? Is it something that gets you? If we're going to understand Romans, we're going to have to understand gospel. And to understand gospel, we have to understand salvation. Now, that doesn't mean you need to know everything about salvation in order to be a Christian, just as you don't need to know everything about a touchdown to play football. You don't, for example, need to understand all the rules of possession when crossing the goal line, though there are times that that would come in handy. Ask the Detroit Lions from a couple years ago. You don't need to understand the etymology of the word touchdown, that it comes through Old French and Middle English from the Latin tacare. You can win the Super Bowl without ever knowing that the word touchdown slid into American sports vocabulary from English rugby, where the player actually touched the ball down to the ground. You don't need to know everything about a touchdown to appreciate football, but you do need to know that a team scores six points every time they get one, and the team with the most points wins. Similarly, you don't need to understand all the nuances of the word salvation or its Greek and Hebrew equivalents, or the tenses used in the verb forms to appreciate and live the Christian life. Though sometimes that might come in handy. But you do need to understand the basics. Otherwise, the gospel is not going to make a whole lot of sense to you. So what do we need to know about salvation in order for us to get in the game? There are a whole bunch of things. We're just going to talk about one or two right now. We need to know that salvation does not mean going to heaven when you die. It's not that the Bible doesn't teach that. It does. It's that the Bible's writers had something else, something bigger in mind when they used the word salvation. In its biggest sense, salvation is God's rescue and restoration of his entire creation. God is going to set right all that's gone wrong. 
He's going to conquer and finally eliminate sin, death, and evil. He will remove injustice and sickness and sorrow from the world. No longer will there be any curse, we read at the end of the, at the, end of the Bible. All the evils that angelic and human rebellion brought on this earth, including separation from God, will be no more. That's the big sense of salvation. But there's a smaller, more individual sense as well. You and I can participate in this salvation. In the day of salvation, when evil is abolished, we haven't got there yet, but in the day of salvation, that's a biblical phrase, when evil is abolished, we can be saved. Now that lies in the future. But the people who will be saved then experience a foretaste. Paul prefers the word first fruits. They will experience a foretaste of salvation now because the same power that will someday restore the world is already restoring individuals. The power that will free the world from sin and the separation with God, bring lasting joy, is accomplishing those very things in individuals already. Whenever the power of God, the power that will save creation, free it from sin and evil, give it joy in God's presence, is at work in individuals, it begins to accomplish those same things in them. So Christians are a promise and a portent of what will be to the rest of the world. That's why the verb to save is found in three tenses. We have been saved. When you read that, that's a past tense. It refers to God's rescue mission through Christ. We are being saved, present tense, referring to the liberating work of God's spirit in our day-to-day -day lives. And we will be saved when Christ returns, not to bear sins, Hebrews chapter 10, but to bring salvation. Now, who are the people who will be saved? That was a big question back then. And it's a big question now. Who are the people who will be saved, the ones who are being saved now? They are the people who, verse 16, Believe. Believe what? In the context, the answer seems to be they believe the gospel. They believe the announcement that God is at work on earth rescuing the world through Christ. And we'll see more about that word belief in just a moment because it's another of those big four words. And by the way, the, the Greek word is pistis. So if I say belief or faith or trust, the, the Greek only has one word for all those. We use them differently. Greek just has one word. And that's one of the big four. Notice that this end time salvation with its present day consequences is open to both Jew and Gentile. Who's going to be saved? Some people said the Jews are going to be saved. But Paul says it's open to both Jew and Gentile. Salvation is not a Jew thing. It's not a Gentile thing. It's not a white thing. It's not a black thing. It's not a rich people's thing. It's not a poor people's thing. It's not even a religious thing. It's a Jesus thing. It's not what you are, but who he is that makes salvation possible. It's not what you'll do, but what he's done. We see that stressed again in verse 17, where we come to the other two big words in this passage, righteousness and faith. These words are so important to Paul that he uses each of them, or their cognates, their other forms, 
50 times in this letter, 50 times each, righteousness and faith. Let me give you a little translation at the beginning of verse 17. For in it, and he's referring to the gospel that he's just mentioned, for in it, God's righteousness is revealed. Now, there are two questions right away that need to be answered. And the first is this, what is righteousness? Now, I know I'm getting pedantic on this. It will be important later on. What is righteousness? And the second question is, whose righteousness are we talking about? Is it God's or is it ours? Is it his own righteousness or is it righteousness that he gives to people? Well, we take the first question first. What is righteousness? If you misunderstand this, so there's been a big debate over this, lasting for hundreds of years, going back to the Reformation. And the Catholics have taken one side of the debate and the Protestants have taken the other side of the debate. What is righteousness? It is not a personal attribute. It's not like omniscience, for example. God has the attribute of omniscience. Righteousness is not like that. Righteousness is a relational quality. That means that if there was only one person in the universe, no matter how perfect he was, he could not be righteous because righteousness requires relationship. To be righteous is to be right, just and good and even merciful in relationship to others. So righteousness is not a character quality that God possesses. It's the way God is in relation to others. Righteousness, whether it's God, God's righteousness or ours, is displayed in relationship. So is the righteousness revealed in the gospel God's or ours? Man, it's hard to separate them. Because God's righteous way of relating to us changes the way we relate to him and to other people. But if this passage leans one way or the other, I think it leans towards the former. So I gave you a literal translation. God's righteousness. Sometimes it's translated as the righteousness from God or the righteousness of God. That is an interpretation more than a translation. God's righteousness. Leon Morris put it this way. Romans is ultimately a book about God, how he acted to bring salvation, how his justice is preserved, how his purposes are worked out in history, how he can be served by his people. Paul's writing about God in this letter, and he's answering questions like this. How can God be righteous? How can he be right in his relationship to others when he justifies the wicked? That's chapter 4, verse 5. It's a passage that would have rocked Paul's Jewish readers. They would have considered the idea that the righteous God justifies wicked people as nothing short of blasphemy. Over and over again, the Old Testament says that God will not justify the wicked. And Paul says that he will. That would have just seemed blasphemous to them. So how can God be righteous when he does things like that? And how can God be right? How can he be righteous when he made unconditional promises to Abraham that he doesn't seem to have kept? That's chapters 9 through 11. So Paul explains, and he explains especially in chapters 3, chapters 9, 10, and 11, how God is righteous despite appearances. 
And he explains, especially in chapters 3 and chapters 6, 7, and 8, how we can be righteous despite appearances. How can we be righteous? Paul gives the preliminary answer right here. And, and we're going to talk, this is such a huge thing in the book of Romans. It's such a huge thing to understand in the Christian life. We're going to talk about it as we go on through this whole letter. But his preliminary answer here, which he's going to explain in more detail as we go on, it involves one of those four big words. Faith. How can, we be, how can we be righteous? Faith. I said that's one of the four big words. It's a big one. I've already mentioned that Paul uses that word group over 50 times in Romans, but that's only part of the picture. The Bible uses that word group over 500 times, 400 just in the New Testament alone. So faith is one of the biggest words in the Bible. But the Bible's word faith is bigger than ours. See, because it includes both having and keeping faith. Faith and faithfulness. And it's translated both ways in the Bible. For example, the same word that is ten times translated faith, the noun, in Romans chapter 4 is the one that we find in Galatians chapter 5 in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, where it is universally translated as faithfulness. Same exact word. And that raises the question in Romans 1.17, which is in mind? Is it faith or is it faithfulness? Keeping faith or having faith? And the answer, I th think, is it's both. Now, I'm not trying to ride the fence here. And once I explain this, you'll get it. Our New International Version translates about that righteousness. It repeats the word righteousness twice. It's only in there once. It repeats it twice and says, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, which is one way of understanding the original language. This could be idiomatic. But let me give you a literal translation. God's righteousness is revealed out of faith or faithfulness to faith or faithfulness. I think what Paul is saying is that God's righteousness, that's what he's talking about, not ours at this point, but hit God's, that his right and good way of relating is revealed out of his faithfulness to our faith. From his keeping faith to our exercising faith. Now he's going to explain especially in chapters 3 and 4, that God's faithfulness calls forth our faith and that that is the mark of his true people. Faith is the mark of his true people. His people are not distinguished by religious identity markers like circumcision in their day, going to church in our day, but by faith in the faithful God who rescues us through Jesus. Faith is what marks God's people as his own. When you and I come to that day of salvation, God is not going to say, how many times did you go to church? He won't be looking for church attendance, but he will be looking for faith. All right, so we have the big four. Gospel, salvation, righteousness, faith. Verses 16 and 17, they're like a taste test at a culinary fair. You get just enough to whet your appetite. The actual meal is coming later. 
But these short verses not only raise questions about what's coming later in the letter, but about what's coming in our lives. For example, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Are you? I was. Not anymore. How about you? Are you experiencing the power of salvation in your life? It's hard to believe in a future salvation in the age to come when you're not experiencing a present salvation in the age that's here. It's God's intention for us that we experience salvation's power, liberating us from sin, giving us joy in his presence now. Now, it's true that that's just a foretaste. But once you've had that taste, you will readily believe and eagerly await the full course meal that's to come. So are you experiencing salvation in your life now? And let me ask one more question. Are you believing the gospel, the good news? One of the first words that's recorded out of the mouth of Jesus in his ministry is repent and believe the gospel. The good news that God has acted through Jesus to rescue people and accept them into his kingdom. That's the way to peace with God. Have you taken it? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for these verses. There's more here than we understand, but I pray that you'll, you'll open up this letter to us in ways that will lift us so that we see things we've never seen before about you, about ourselves, about each other. Lord, that we'll experience a oneness with you that you intend that's transforming our lives. And we readily acknowledge that we owe all to you and what you've done through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.